attorney and talk radio host Robert Patillo next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey everybody, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonize alongside my buddy Jason Nichols, Dr. Jason Nichols, and uh, we are chatting about the world's problems as always. We're going to probably solve them by the, by the end of this episode. Uh, Jason sure. Nichols, who's here to help us do that today? Of course, we have Robert Patillo, one of my favorite uh, talk radio hosts and someone who I've been on air with. I was on air with him on a streaming show last night always has interesting opinions and very articulate and you do not want to debate this guy. So I'm not going to try. We're going to have a good conversation. Robert, how's it going, man? Hey, it's going great. How are you guys? Excellent. Excellent. Uh-huh. Robert. So I want to ask you, you're down there in Georgia, right? Yep. So I, I want to ask you about the, the political temperature right now. Of course, Georgia has been in the news since 2020 and everything that's gone on uh, since then Uh, We saw that uh, former President Trump had a very difficult time uh, with some of those primaries in Georgia. We know he lost a lot of the congressional races. Our buddy Vernon Jones got got trounced. Uh, You know, uh, Kemp uh, won. Jody Heiss lost uh, to Raffensperger. Is it over for Trump in Georgia? Not by a long shot, because let's understand, Georgia's been a uh, purple state masquerading as a red state for 20 years. If you look at the state demographically, it's 35% African-American, 20% Latino, 10% Asian, uh, one of the largest LGBTQ populations in the country, 52% women, some of the best universities, young voters coming in. Uh, but at the same time, we've been passing a progression of voter suppression laws since 1997, uh, which have made sure to change the political demographics of the state. So for the last decade or so before uh, Warnock and Ossoff won in 2021, uh, you did not see a single Democrat win statewide, despite those demographics. Uh, you still have not had a constitutional officer elected statewide uh, since 2008, I believe. So when you're talking about the Trump effect in the state of Georgia, uh, it's not so much that he won't um, that he won't be a kingmaker, but there's still a good third of the Republican Party that is still bought and sold in the MAGA movement. Some of the most extreme MAGAs you can think of in the country, people like Herschel Walker, um, uh, people like Collins, the former congressperson, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're still in Georgia and they will be uh, dictating a lot of Republican policies going forward in the state. They'll still be a force in primaries. Now, their ability to win general elections is still up for question, uh, but I don't think by any means you can consider Trumpism to be dead. You mentioned voter suppression in Georgia. Do you think that that's the state of affairs in Georgia right now in elections? Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, let's remember that uh, 1997 was the first voter suppression law where they literally put in, uh, you can read during the hearings when they were passing that law that it was meant to reduce the African-American vote. Um, the voter suppression law they passed in 2005 was struck down uh, by the Justice Department as being a poll tax. So yes, Georgia had a poll tax in 2005. Uh, if you look at the uh, voter integrity bill that was passed uh, uh, after the 2020 election, mm-hmm. the literal purpose of them passing the bill was to take power away from the local jurisdictions that had just cost Trump the election and place that power against the Constitution in the house in the hands of the Republican-controlled legislature. So the, they they don't hide the fact that what they're doing is to try to maintain political power despite the changing demographics of the state. Well, the, the, the United States Constitution, I don't know if you're referring to the Georgia Constitution, but the U.S. Constitution does actually vest power for election laws into the state legislature and the United States Congress. Uh, but the you know what's happened in Georgia, the trend among voters is that it, people have not never voted by higher margins. I mean, they're people are showing up, they're voting. We you just went through primaries in Georgia where you had record turnout. Uh, and so there there aren't votes being suppressed just based on the data. Well, let's see, uh, this is where Republicans get into those uh, that tricky math they like to use. So one, hmm. yes, I was talking about the Georgia state constitution, not the U.S. constitution. Uh, but at the same time, it's n- not a question of the total number of votes, because you have to look at the uh, actual population increase uh, as it's proportional to the number of votes that you're getting increased. So yes, we're getting more people voting, but we're also getting, uh, we also are having a population that's increasing at a higher rate of the than the increase in voting. Remember, Atlanta's population has doubled uh, just in the last 20 years. And when I say they wrested power away from the people and put it in the hands of the legislature, Literally, the uh, 
chief constitutional officer overseeing elections in Georgia was the Secretary of State. Up until this new election, the bills were passed, which gave the state legislature the ability to override the Secretary of State on elections. It also allows the state legislature to go into, let's say, Fulton County uh, or DeKalb County, majority African-American counties, and then take over the voting process there um, for very specious reasons at best. So the, the idea of this not being a voter suppression bill, I think is antithetical to everything that we've seen statistically throughout the state of Georgia over the course of the last two decades. Yeah, I think that was one of the, the problems uh, in the marketing of this. People were talking about not being able to have water in line and, and all of the things that weren't the key crux of the, of the bill, which was the ability to overturn an election, a free and fair election, which I think was the most dangerous part of uh, that Georgia bill. Um, now, what do you what do you think about uh, Stacey Abrams? Does she really have a shot? Because you know, according to all the polls, she's far behind, and of course, uh, Warnock is is looking like he could actually pull it out. Um, it's pretty sad that you know <laughs> it's even that close, to be honest, but. Uh, looking at that, at the Stacey Abrams race, she's become a big celebrity. She's somebody who I actually wanted to uh, go and be the vice presidential nominee at one point. And I know that when I went to the debates that were at Tyler Perry Studios in Georgia, the Democratic debates, she got the loudest applause, louder than John Lewis at the time. Like the crowd, when she stood up, went absolutely bananas. But that's not translating to these polls, which may not take into account the voter suppression that you're you're referencing. So what do you think's happening there? Does she have a shot? Um, or is this going to be, is this Kemp State? Uh, no, she doesn't have a shot. Um, and then also, yes, this is Kemp State. Uh, pre, uh, Governor Kemp. I'm sorry, did, just to be clear, Robert, did you say she does or does not have a shot? Does not. No, she does not have a shot. Uh, Governor Kemp has put the state in a position to have an $8 billion surplus after his first term in office. Uh, standing up to Trump the way that he did gave him points where you can no longer uh, paint him as being, you know, part of this radical MAGA movement. Him and Raffensperger are very much seen as being people who will stand up to the Republican Party establishment and put the people of the state of Georgia before uh, party politics. And as much as people try to paint him as being one of these you know, crazed MAGA Republicans, uh, he signed into um, he signed into law what many people would consider the quote unquote defund the police law. Uh, which requires for a mental health evaluator to accompany police to address any mental health uh, crises uh, that normally re uh, that could result in escalation to police violence. Uh, he also was the person who's, uh, who's helped Black farmers throughout the course of his administration, uh, who uh, signed the, uh, the end of the uh, Georgia citizen, uh, citizen arrest bill, the law that was used by the killers of Ahmaud Arbery uh, to hunt him down. So he's been a reasonably progressive uh, governor, uh, just wrapped up as a Southern redneck. And I think the Stacey Abrams problem, uh, many people don't like me saying this because the Democratic Party has turned into kind of this cadre of the Elites, uh, who have little dinner parties, they hang out at Tyler Perry Studios, um, they take pictures with Kamala and LeBron James and those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I didn't get a picture with, with yeah, Kamala yeah. or as elite as elite as I am. <laughs> they, they, the, the, the Democratic Party is very much turned into a party of small cocktails uh, hours at law firms that do not know how to talk to people. Uh, right now, Donald Trump can come into Georgia and go up to Dalton in the middle of nowhere and pull a crowd of three to 5,000 people on a Tuesday afternoon. There's nobody in the Democratic Party who has that ability. Agreed. And that speaks to the fact they have no, uh, no, no interest in going down to the streets, going down to anywhere you have to be afraid your car might get stolen and actually campaigning to people. And as long as you're afraid they campaign to the people you want to vote for you, you're going to lose. Let me cite some data, too, to support the argument you're making, which is uh, out of Axios. They talk about the fundraising that's being done between Brian Kemp right now and Stacey Abrams. Uh, from Georgia, from all fundraising, Brian Kemp has made $31.5 million, most of it from Georgia, $26.2 million. Stacey Abrams has raised nearly $50 million, just seven from Georgia. All of the money, almost all of the money is from out of state. And that kind of gets to the point that you're making, which is, that there is that there are wealthy elites who are who like Stacey Abrams who are keying in on her, but she's just not resonating apparently in Georgia. 
Well, I, I think part of the problem is when your when your money comes nationally, you have to have national issues. When your money comes locally, you get to have local issues. So I did this thought experiment with a group of legislators I was speaking to last week. Uh, if you were uh, running for governor in the state of Georgia and you saw a group of uh, 18 to 24-year-old African-American males standing at a bus stop in the middle of southwest Atlanta, one of those neighborhoods that they make documentaries about, uh, you hop out of your campaign vehicle, you walk over to them. What do you to talk to them about to get them to uh, register and turn out to vote? Do you talk to them about climate change? Um, do you talk to them about Roe versus Wade? Uh, do you talk to them about you know Medicare expansion? Democrats don't have a message for them. They don't have an yeah. interest in having a message for them, so, and that's why you can't get them. So if I can if I can interrupt real quick, um, I think one of the big problems for the Democratic Party. I agree hundred percent. The only thing that I don't agree. Or, or I at least want to make a, a little bit of a difference here or a distinction is the idea that Republicans are somehow with the working class and that Democrats are these super elites. I think politics is elite. And we're seeing, for example, you got guys like J.D. Vance who get $10 million from uh, Peter Thiel. And then mm -hmm. you're going to say, and hey, I'm a working class, you know, I'm for the working class. It's like, no, you're getting the same money. Stacey Abrams is probably getting $500 from some physician in Vermont. But that guy's not as elite as Peter Thiel. But at any rate, I do believe one of the things that the messages that I do want to um, kind of key in on is they don't have a message. African, you know, there's no message for African-American men. And that's where the Democrats are going to lose uh, in a lot of races. They're going to get very surprised because they are not messaging to African-American men. And those guys in Southwest Atlanta, I think there is a way to tell them about climate change. I think there is a way to tell them about the environment. You know, when, when you roll through any inner city in this country and you see those big buses and that black smoke go in the air and say, your babies are breathing that. You know what I mean? What are we going to do about that? You know, I think that there is a way when there's that same guy in Southwest Atlanta is going to see his kids. You, you can actually message to him on issues that affect climate change and all of that. It's all how you do it. But the Democrats have failed at doing that. And they've made it about a lot of these simple identity politics uh, without actually getting some depth to their messaging. And they assume that people are just going to vote for them without actually messaging. What do you think, Robert? Well, yeah, I, I agree completely uh, with that. But at the same time, I think the other issue is that they uh, was one thing to message what you want to talk about to them. It's another thing to ask them what they right. want to talk about, to ask them what their issues are. Uh, that's one of the uh, one of the big benefits of the Trump rallies is call and response. Trump gets a real time poll. You say something, people clap. You put that in the messaging. You say something, people boo. You don't put that in the messaging. So I think instead of talking to them and trying to convince them that climate change is an issue, which it is, I think you should talk to them about what the hell they want. Like, what is it that you want us to change? Do you want us to create job opportunities? You want us to put in a, a national Why program? Why can't Don't have certificate. You can do both, but I think that, that we leave off the actual talking to voters about what they want and sticks only to uh, focus groups. Uh, well, then what you end up with is running a uh, running a Seattle campaign in Atlanta, which does not work well. Hmm. Let me, I, I feel like both of you all have thoughts on this. I know both of you have thoughts on this, which is, uh, and I'll start, Robert, of course, with you, is what do you think about at the national level, how deep the Democrat bench is to the extent that it is deep? Um, it's, you know, you've got Joe Biden, you know, New Hampshire survey out this week, just the latest survey, but there's a whole bunch of polls you could look at saying 74% of Democrats don't want him to run again. Uh, in, in that state. Um, in fact, among presidential preference, he's number two. He's behind Pete Buttigieg uh, in New Hampshire, among New Hampshire Democrats. Um, how deep is the bench for the Democratic Party? And, you know, if the, and if you don't think it's deep enough, what, the, what should they be working on right now to actually make it deeper? 
Well, you know, I, I find it uh, interesting when people talk about the idea of a bench, because after George W. Bush left office, for example, there was no Republican bench at all. And then especially nobody would have put uh, Donald Trump on the bench uh, right. of yeah. upcoming Republicans. I totally. think the bench kind of evolves yeah. over time. And what's going to have to happen is some of the older gatekeepers uh, are going to slowly move out of the way or someone's going to push them but, out of the way and they'll open up a whole new bench. I think Democrats were but Robert. Or, yeah. They they lost after George W. Bush too. You know this I mean? is true. This is true. So you, but you I, gotta, but I, you yeah, gotta I think, remember that. Yeah, I think what happened is that you had you saw the establishment still trying to hold power for a while, and then once they saw Hillary running, they said. We're not going to win anyway. Let's just let anybody run. And that's how Trump kind of arose. I think similar, uh, something similar might have to happen for Democrats, where you stop running the you know oldest, whitest guy in the room and just hope he can be a consensus builder. And you actually take into consideration some of these, quote unquote, radical ideas that are supported by 80 or 90 percent of the American people. Uh, if you look at Biden's poll numbers, Biden can do like three things this week. And double his poll numbers, basically. Marijuana decriminalization, student loan cancelization, and executive order on climate change. And everybody will say, wow, that was a great idea. Why did he do that a long time ago? But for some reason, they are unwilling to do those things. I know things that they campaigned on. And Democrats have this bad habit of just saying, hey, look, I didn't do anything that you, I told you I was going to do. You used to definitely vote for me because if, there were, if I had a bigger majority, I could continue doing not a damn thing for you. And that's definitely like what you voted for. No, I, I agree with that. The only thing that I that I would I would say is that a lot of things that Democrats want and the American people overall want were in that Build Back Better uh, plan. The problem was Democrats didn't know how to message. And I can tell you, I go into Western Maryland and Western Virginia, uh, excuse me, West Virginia, and uh, and you know Central Pennsylvania sometimes, and in those areas. One of the things that I, just to your point and a point that you made earlier, Robert, was, you know, I talked to some people out there and th one of the reasons they love Trump is because he showed up. He went to an area of Maryland that no one goes to. And there's a little small airport. He landed his plane there. He didn't speak. He just got off the plane and waved to a crowd for about 10 minutes, got back on the plane and went somewhere else. But he showed up. You've never seen Joe Biden in that part of Maryland. You know, they think we're going to win Maryland. So why even show up for those people? You know, we're not going to win West Virginia. So why show up for those people? And, uh, you know, they'll go through Pennsylvania. But my point is, Democrats need to start showing up, start showing that they'll fight for every vote. Someone who I don't think is necessarily a great candidate, uh, Beto O'Rourke, he gets really close in Texas. How does he get so close? Not because he's a great candidate, because he goes everywhere and he speaks to everyone. And I think that that's one of the things that Democrats are missing and they don't bring their message. They just said build back better. But what is build back better? What's in it? Americans actually love universal pre-K. And, and if you had framed universal pre-K in the sense that not only these European countries are doing it, but you know who else is expanding their, their uh, pre-K program? China. China is going to be better educated than us because they're expanding their program. So is Russia. So our adversaries are doing this and they're going to surpass us just like they're surpassing us in other ways. So there's a way to frame this that I think even Republicans would get along with. But Democrats just don't do a good job at getting out of there and, and messaging to the entire American people. And then they hired the two worst communicators in the party to be their leadership. What well, you know, to, yeah, to, to that point, I, I find it interesting. Let's just take a very uh, uh, an issue that people are talking about. Uh, let's talk about the border. This is just a, an example. Sure. The way that Democrats would message the border is they would say, well, we need to have multilateral talks involving the other uh, nations within our sphere of hegemonic power, also about creating a pathway to citizenship while expanding our guest visa program, streamlining the uh, program for amnesty across the southern border, fight the war on drugs and human trafficking in order to create a, a bilateral agreement that will both secure the border and create the metrics for economic growth going, for, uh, going forward. The Republican answer to that would be wall build the wall, 
And so it's very difficult to uh, uh, appeal to voters on at a basic level when you're talking like you're teaching a course at Vassar uh, instead of being able to message it down to a, ch a chunk that people cannot just remember, um, but understand and comprehend. So when it comes to Build Back Better, uh, it was a huge omnibus piece of legislation. And in addition to not being able to message it, uh, think about how many folks you know in Trump orbit. You know, you knew the uh, down to like the third chief of staff. We knew the uh, advisors, the presidential council, etc., because they were always out and they were omnipresent in media. So whatever Trump tweeted out that morning, uh, by uh, by the time you got to the morning shows and Fox and Friends, you had three or four Trump acolytes on, and they stayed on television and radio carrying the exact same message all day, every day, until you got to the last show that went on at the end of the night, and then they went to the internet to carry that message forward. Who does that on the Biden side? Who are the top surrogates for Joe Biden? If you turn on the uh, Tonight Show or uh, Late Night Shows, those sorts of things, who from the administration can go on and hold a conversation? Who are the consistent faces that are going to always be on the president's side? It seems you see more Democrats criticizing Biden on television than actually supporting him. It is very difficult to build a movement around it. We don't have people who are actually cheerleading the administration. Yeah, no, I, and, and you know, it's funny, we've spent the last 20 minutes to, I, I don't know if I'm a Democrat, but uh, to, I guess, Democrats criticizing, you know, Democrats while while Vince sits back and smirks. Um, you know, I, I definitely uh, think that Trump is a media guy. He loved media. He loved cable news. He's somebody who was watching all the time. And these people also wanted to impress Trump. If I go out there and I go on Newsmax or Fox News or News Nation or any of these right wing networks or even, you know, the crazy right wing daily caller, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, no one from the Biden administration is going to call me and say, good job. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? <laughs> like, I think that's honestly part of it. Oh, not, yeah. not for me, you know, well, you personally, know, but I, I think that like the Trump people knew when they went on air and they defended Donald Trump that Donald, that they were going to get some sort of like, uh, you know, you could have access to the president. You know, you were going to get a pat on the back if you did a good job and you went on CNN. And that's the thing. Pete Buttigieg, re reason people want Pete Buttigieg is because Pete Buttigieg goes into right wing media and never loses because he's an he's a really good communicator, but, I mean, and a really good debater. If I can jump in here, just there's a problem, I think, when. This is just listening to your talk, but I, I think broadly when I hear criticism around, around the left, which is like, well, the message is the problem. Like, you know, when when Obama went to the White House, a reporter stuck a microphone in his face and was like basically something about like, hey, what's what's going to happen in the midterms? It seems like things are going poorly. And he said something to the effect of uh, we've got a great story to tell. We just have to tell it better. That was basically what he reacted with. And he walked away from the reporter. He made it into like a messaging issue. It's a messaging issue. If we just fix the messaging, people will like us more. And I think, honestly, I think voters, they can smell out when they're being spun. They can they can sniff it out when you're talking a lot and you're trying to save it and you're actually doing very little for them. And so, as Robert, when you were laying out kind of like the Democrat messaging around immigration, you know, root causes, multilateral, stop human trafficking, kind of like it's not just Byzantine. It's not details that people are getting lost in. It's that they know what's actually happening, which is that millions of people are pouring into the country. And nobody likes that. Like you ask anybody, like nobody likes that. It's a to totally disorderly system. You know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. You know, you might be, you might quiet it more based on your politics, but you don't like that situation. And, you know, and there are a lot of people being exploited in that process. The drugs pouring across the border, the human trafficking that's going on. It's just a lot of misery. And there's not a lot of evidence that the Biden administration has the courage to fix it because they seem to be okay with the status quo. Uh, and, or at least they're, they're concerned about their leftward um, incoming uh, so much that they they don't want to be seen as, you know, as locking down the border and, and hammering it. I mean, you talk to people coming across the border. Hey, why are you here? Biden. That's what changed Biden. And they'll, and they'll say it. It's not, you know, it's not, not a talking point. It's just a basic thing. It's, it's I, I didn't come during Trump. I knew I didn't have as much of a chance. Although many people did come during Trump. Don't let it, don't let anybody get fooled. Yeah, a lot of people came during Trump. But but also during but during Biden, it's, people have an expectation and rightfully so, because they're going to succeed that they're getting going to get into the United States and they're going to be able to stay. So this isn't as simple as, well, it's just the messaging. You know, Republicans can say that they want to secure the border, or in your words, wall, and Democrats talk too much. No, it's that Democrats aren't doing shit to fix it. That's like, that's the primary issue. 
the messaging, yeah, it's good to have a good message, but you got to have a good policy first. Well, well the, the issue of policy, let's remember, Republicans don't want to fix the border either. Uh, they have absolutely no interest in doing so. They like to talk about wanting to fix the border. And guess, and guess what? The problem with the border isn't that people want to come here. The problem with the border is that we have a political system where Republicans score points by talking about wanting to close it down, while also wanting the business benefits of having cheap labor uh, in basically every sector. You close that border down, hotels shut down the, uh, the first day, farms shut down the second day, and the American society grinds to a halt the, uh, the following day. Uh, but what we have to have is, like you said, an orderly system that is not politically expedient to either side. And because of that, we haven't had any sort of immigration reform uh, since Reagan in 1986 with his quote-unquote amnesty bill. Funny thing about the 86 amnesty bill of Reagan, guess who was against that? Coretta Scott King. Since he wrote a letter uh, saying how it would hurt the African-American community to bring in more uh, illegal immigrants. So it's an yeah. interesting point of, uh, uh, of cause that when you don't have a concrete policy that makes sense and you're still having the same Byzantine conversations from the 1980s, you end up with basically the perfect political soccer ball that people can kick back and forth without ever having to do anything. We had uh, compromises on immigration in February 2018. We had another one in 2015. We had another one in 2013 that could have been signed off on that would have fixed the problem, but neither side I had the political interest of doing so. Yeah, I think the, we, yeah, yeah. I, I, by the way, I agree with you on, on, um, you know, the incentives of big labor and, you know, and why this this problem continues to be, to exist. Uh, and of course, the influence they wield, not just among Republicans but among Democrats too, that that produces a massive roadblock to fixing what is obviously a problem. Uh, and once again, it's the American people being fundamentally ignored. This is a base. This is just a basic sort of populist issue. Right. I mean, you you may you talk about the demographics in the United States. Why is there a massive realignment going on right now? Why are meaning not not just between Democrats to Republicans? I'm talking about just depolarization among races, especially. It's because people are so dissatisfied with the system. They're look, they're pawing everywhere for answers. And and they're and they're saying, you're not you're not serving me. I'm going to the other guys. And you're seeing it, especially in border communities where Latinos are now voting in majority Republicans because they want security. I mean, this is there's something super yeah. interesting going on. And Washington is basically ignoring it. No, I, I agree with that 100 percent. The only thing that I will say, everyone, uh, a lot of my Republican friends keep talking about Maida Flores. And I just want to be clear that she won in a special election where seven percent of eligible voters voted. So. We really don't know that that was a huge realignment. Now, again, I, I will agree with you that I think more. But look Latinos, at 2020. Just look at the 2020 no, presidential. No, look no, no, at 2020 I, exit polls. I'm not. I'm not and, disagreeing with you, Vince. I, yeah, yeah. I, actually, I just, I just, I'm just making the point that don't, don't, don't reflexively think as Myra, Myra Flores as some sort of fluke because we've got a, a big pile of evidence behind it that says, okay, there's something very important sure. going on. And and I think one of the one of the problems, and and again. Because we have in the White House one of the worst communicators, um, and and he's he's lost his fastball even more recently, you know, over the last five years or so. But uh, one of the things that he said that was correct, he just said it in an incorrect way, is that Latino communities are very diverse. So I think this idea of this overarching Latino identity and Latino community is a right. bad way of looking at it. You right. know, uh, Cuban Americans have always been Republican. Uh, Venezuelans have largely for a long time been Republican. Puerto Ricans and Dominicans have largely been Democratic and still are Mexican-Americans. So, but we are seeing those border communities uh, who are frustrated, uh, you know, starting to look to, to for other answers. Now, I will say, I do agree with the administration that you have to, if you want to solve this problem, he mentioned 1986. So we're talking, we're for, you know, four decades in now to talking about immigration. If we want to solve this problem, you need to look at root causes. Like that is one of the things. If I have a leak, I can't keep putting a bucket down. If I want to stop the leak, I've got to find the source of the leak. And one of the things that we are seeing when you look at uh, the migration, yes, people say they have a better chance of getting in, but why did they yeah. leave in the first place? But if you Security, keep cutting checks- Economics, but climate Jason, change. If you keep cutting checks to your insurance company, and your leak continues and they say they're not going to cover it, <laughs> then that's a big problem. That's what we've been doing in Central America. We've been dumping money into Central America for decades yeah. and we have not actually gotten a resolution because we keep saying, oh, it's the root causes. 
But we've been doing, I, I don't agree that we've been going after root causes the entire time, but I will say this, we've been doing it the wrong way. There are things that we need to, to, to deal with, climate change, political corruption. You don't dump money on politically corrupt people I agree. because they'll do corrupt things with it. I agree. So there are a lot of those things that we need to deal with if we want to keep these people off our borders or else we'll be talking about this in 2032 yeah. and, you know, 2036. I think that um, we'll continue <laughs> to talk about these things. And at that and, point, Robert's still going to be waiting to jump in. I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> Go ahead, Robert. Well, no, because the, the, the funny, what I think the biggest issue with immigration is, is us not reframing the issue. We still talk about it from this very weird uh, 1980s, it's a problem that people want to come here. No, the problem is that we have an, or, an organized way for people to come here. The only way, the reason America does not have negative population growth is because of immigration. The only reason that America still has a service sector is because of immigration. The only reason America still has a manufacturing and a agricultural sector is because of immigration. Look at other nations who, um, who don't have the same immigration problems as us. Japan has a graying population that's gonna to come to a cliff in the next couple of years. There's not enough young people and the young people aren't having sex. Look at China and their one child policy. Now, you're, uh, now they're realizing the problem that is you have more old people than you have young people, and the young people can't support the old people as they uh, as that boomer generation gets too old to actually be able to um, continue in the workforce. We're seeing similar issues in India. So we, we talk about immigration like it's a bad thing, like it's some kind of virus coming in, instead of seeing it as the lifeblood of America, is because for some reason there are groups in this country that are very afraid of demographic shifts. That's actually, if you go back to the Mexican-American War, the only reason we did not annex the entirety of Mexico Mexico uh, was because of the fear of demographic shifts that you have a majority Mexican population in America that will lead to social unrest. We still have that exact same policy right now instead of just saying, look, let's bring more people in the right way because that's the lifeblood of America. Yeah, I don't I, I don't really know of anybody who thinks that immigration itself needs to be ended entirely. I think it's the debate, at least on the right, is about how much legal immigration we should have at any one time. You know, and, and so for any normal functioning country, you have to have, you know, some limits on immigration. You have to have people assimilate. You can't have the whole planet come at once. That's completely destabilizing. So there has to be, you know, there has to be some appropriate uh, rate of flow into the United States of America. The people are criticizing are criticizing, I think, on the same basis you are, which is illegal immigration, the disorderly system that and it's not really we we, may, we probably shouldn't even call it immigration, although physically that is what happens. It's just simply illegal for foreign nationals to pour into our country without us having a say in in how you get here and under what circumstances and whether you should be here at all. We we have a say in that as a country together. Well, yeah. look, I or I, sorry, just I agree that we have a say in it, but it should be some kind of logical say, some kind of thing that's like tethered to reality. I, I have a client right now who've been in deportation proceedings since 2015. Um, the backlog is too large. You know, you can live out an entire life waiting to be deported in this country, but at the same time, you have to live in the shadows. So uh, there has to be a way to come to a point of not talking about this like it's still the 1840s and actually coming to an uh, actual resolution because most of the people who come here illegally, guess what? They don't want to stay here. Mm -hmm. They want to come here and work and go back home. The places that we go on vacation is where they live at. They don't want to go to Minnesota and pick cucumbers. They would like to just go there, work, and return back home. If they have a functioning system, then the problem kind of uh, uh, goes away. Once you can actually talk about it, as if, and not in these terms of, as the right says, invasion, they're stealing our sovereignty. What did they say the Republican National Convention in 2020? Um, they want to destroy Western civilization as we know it. All these dog whistles, CDP people to make you them think that there's this great population shift they need to be afraid of. So I, I think the, the debate on the right, as I understand it, and Vince, you, you can kind of fill in here, but I think part of the debate is what is America getting out of it? So one of the things that we see that's bipartisan is the Farm Worker Modernization Act, um, which I think Biden could say, look, this is a win. This is going to be bipartisan. We want to bring in farm workers in order, you know, give them visas and give them options because it helps us. It helps our farms. Uh, a lot of the rural people actually want it. The other thing is that I think the, the right, you know, like at least Trump, he was like, look, we want people with skills. You know what I mean? So we want people, you know, tech workers and people that will actually help us build our economy. 
we don't need, you know, the guy, uh, you know, the young man from Honduras who has no skills and is not a farm worker. So I think that's what the right kind of, at least that's the understanding of the, the framing that I, that I understand. Um, I think the thing with immigration that we need to understand is if we really want to solve this problem, you know, it, it doesn't start at the border. And if you just do that, you need the cooperation. I think one of the things Vince and I agree, have agreed on is that, you know, many people on the right were saying, hey, well, well if you want asylum and you have an issue in Honduras, then why aren't you getting asylum in uh, Nicaragua or in Guatemala or in Mexico before you actually get to the United States? You have other options. Um, I think one of the things we do need is stable uh, governments in the Northern Triangle and in Mexico. And for people to be able to, if they have to leave wherever it is they are, uh, we need cooperation from those stable governments where not everybody has to come to the United States. Um, but I think that there are a lot of workers that benefit our economy. This is why you know, I consider myself to be pro-immigration is because like, there are a lot of those people who actually help us and help our economy. And we, you know, they've already done several experiments where they try to get Americans to do farm work for the wages that farm workers work for. It's not that we're lazy. It's that those wages aren't, you know, something that, you know, American citizens want to work for and do that kind of work for. So they've done experiments in North Carolina where, you know, they tried to get people to do that work for that amount of money. And by the end, they have no one left. Yeah. So, so we're, we're so and so the status quo is that we perpetuate a system where we have an underclass that we're playing, paying poverty wages in order to do that work. It's like it, it's that's awful. So I, my point is this simply that that should be fixed. Also, that, you know, these Central American countries, although the current iteration of this immigration crisis did begin with the Northern Triangle countries, that's not where we are anymore. Now it's people from all over the planet who are coming across our border. And it's the Mexican cartels who are being enriched in this process. Right now, that industry, according to the Department of Homeland Security, is a $13 billion a year industry the cartels are generating. And that's just their human trafficking operations, bringing people into the United States. So let me ask you this. Do you think that, uh, and actually both of you, Robert as well, um, and then we probably should you know, close it down here. But um, what do you guys, do you think that Haitians with all the political upheaval that they are experiencing, that they should uh, get political asylum here in the United States? Oh, well, well, if you're starting with me, uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm Haitian, I'm Haitian-American. And, <laughs> oh, and, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, and, and so at the same time, you know, nothing has happened in Haiti for the last 250 years without the uh, imprimatur of the United States of America, be it the uh, embargo put on them by Thomas Jefferson or the invasion of them by Woodrow Wilson, or that time that uh, President Clinton uh, invaded, or that time that President Bush uh, kidnapped the president and dropped him off in Africa, or that time when Joe Biden was president and the president of Haiti mysteriously got assassinated and everybody just seemed to not know what was going on despite all the DEA agents and having to be in Port-au-Prince uh, at the same time. Uh, so this idea that America is not significantly or if not completely responsible for the quote-unquote political upheaval because whenever any kind of leader arose and hated the, the U.S. was against, they mysteriously either died or went missing or were deposed. Uh, so I think, yes, uh, America does owe the Haitian people and many other Central and South American countries for their meddling over the course of the last couple of decades. All these countries want is self-determination, and they're not allowed to have such because of what's in America's best interest is not always in the best interest of the countries in their sphere of hegemonic power. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll table the question. I'm sorry, I won't give you an answer because my thinking on this is basically, Jason, that we need a, a basic threshold for like, okay, at what, like how much chaos in anybody's country indicates that they are entitled to asylum in the United States. And I don't know what the answer to that question should be. Um, but, you know, obviously, once you start down that road, then, you know, there's a lot of a lot of countries and especially a lot of countries where the United States has been involved, uh, where that, that might eventually be justified. But I want to ask a question of Robert, because I wasn't aware of this particular thing. You said that after the assassination of the president of Haiti, there were DEA agents crawling all over the place. Is there a theory that the United States government 
uh, assassinated him. Not don't get a shadow ban, Vince. <laughs> no, no. I just, I mean, when he just was like, he was like, man, you know, Biden's president, the Haitian president was killed. DE agents were everywhere. I'm just asking questions. I thought it was the Central American. There were Central American guys that went the, in there. Yeah, the, it, it's, it's an interesting thing where you had a combination of Haitian gangs led by the G7 and their leader, Jimmy Barbecue uh, Devalier. Uh, who was working alongside uh, a Florida businessman. Who Wait, had, his name was Duvalier? I think it was Duvalier. I have to look oh it up. It's, it's, Jim, it's Jimmy <laughs> Barbecue. Quote okay. me on the Jimmy Barbecue part. Uh, there were also Colombian uh, mercenaries who had gotten through, despite the fact that those waters are patrolled by the U.S., uh, who carry out the assassination. Also, the fact that, you know, all, all the security guards are alive and the president's dead is always really uh, iffy. Uh, for things, you know, that's usually not a good sign where there's no gunshots except for the ones that uh, went into the president. So there's all kinds of theories out there. But generally speaking, when uh, something happens within the sphere of hegemonic control of the United States of America, you know, 90 miles uh, from one of your states, uh, you have a serious international incident. You hear more about it than we heard about it in U.S. news. It kind of bubbled up for two days and then evaporated completely. Uh, so when we talk about political unrest within the region, uh, mm -hmm. the U.S.'s fingerprints for the last 75 to 100 years have always been on it. I think many people believe that going on currently. But don't you think like part of this with with Haitians is because um, and and I forgive me if this sounds insensitive, but. I think when we think of Haiti, we think it's one thing after another. Like Haiti is always experiencing some sort of upheaval, tragedy, natural disaster, that that's what desensitized the American media to, to uh, uh, Moise's uh, assassination. Well, it's a concept called Haiti fatigue, but it's completely engineered by, by Western press. You know, if all you did were, uh, think about Chicago, for example. You know how the uh, calling card on the right when everything something happens is, well, what about Chicago? Uh, because it's almost as if you want to make it seem like the entire city is this so mad mech style war zone. Well, you go there, you go to the lake, you go to Magnificent Mile, you take pictures by the jelly bean, you eat uh, uh, Italian beef, you go to a Cubs or a White Sox game, things are fine. Similar to Haiti. If on the only thing that you're ever going to report on are all the terrible things that happen, you put this image out there that only terrible things happen, which re, um, negates tourism, negates foreign investment, negates uh, expatriation. So it turns into a snowball effect around that. Hmm. Yeah. You got me thinking. You got me thinking, that's for sure. I was, yeah. yeah, because I, I was instantly, as soon as you brought up Haiti and, and the uh, coverage and Jason, what you were talking about, I was like, oh, yeah, Chicago too. You know, think that's a place, and Robert said it, Chicago. Um, Man, yeah, yeah, I want to see things turn around. I think, you know, Chicago is one of those places where is, you know, all of these cities uh, that that the right likes to mention, a lot of times they're actually some of the safer cities. They can make like good arguments about other cities. But I mean, but let's Chicago, not get crazy. I, 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 there are definitely dangerous areas of Chicago. I mean, oh, sure. Chicago, there's, there, and, what's, and, what city aren't there dangerous areas no, in? No, I know. But you can, it's, you know, Chicago is one of, if like there are areas of Chicago that are more dangerous than a lot of third world countries. So there, so um, that, so just an, and like, and that's not just like the right saying it, that's like Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago saying it, you know, there's, yeah, we, there's definitely gun violence in Chicago. Um, but I would say there, there are parts of the country, uh, you know, that are again, and, and a lot of times they, they make this a partisan thing and I don't want to go through all the talking points of like, the Republican cities that are just smaller, but have, you know, higher rates of violence and murder than you would find in Chicago. Those areas are desperate. And that's an argument that I think the populist right, if you really are a populist, you, you will talk about the poverty there uh, and, and the situation, the economic situation. And those are not you are, I'm, I'm talking mm -hmm. about just in general, right. but you know, the, the populist right, you know, if they're really concerned about those areas, don't throw them and kind of dehumanize it. Talk about the poverty. Talk about the, the desperation. Talk about the education there and come up with solutions That's rather true. than using it as a talking point. But poverty, poverty, and Robert, you may know on this, but, you know, like we talked to, I think we talked to Zed Jelani a while ago. There are people out there that, that have looked at this, you know, poverty does not have a direct correlation with violence. Is disconnected. You can find very impoverished areas in America that are very are not violent at all, very safe communities. 
And then you can find very impoverished areas that are very violent communities. And so poverty, you're right, that is, as, a, as both of those issues in isolation need to be confronted aggressively. And just kind of to that point, and kind of tying together Chicago and the conversation on immigration, uh, the big thing that ties both of those together is the U.S. policy on drugs. That is Mexican drug cartels, you know, they're delivering the one good that you can sell in America for 80 to 1,000 times their production costs that Americans like to put up their noses and into their veins. And at the same time, the violence in Chicago and many other urban areas is turf wars for gangs in order to sell those same narcotics. Just as we saw the the mob and Al Capone back in the 20s, you end the prohibition, you end the uh, economic incentives. If you can just go to Walgreens and buy the drugs you want, well, you've now cut the Northern Triangle out of the entire equation. Uh, if you no longer have to, uh, vice lords and uh, bloods are no longer fighting over who gets to sell a certain product in a certain area, well, now you've taken away the economic incentive of that and you can use that money towards um, community de- development because you have housing issues in many of these cities. You have uh, transportation issues. You have access to food issues, access to education. Um, and so all those things kind of trace their way back to this draconian uh, war on drugs we've been losing for the last uh, uh, 75 or 80 years. But for some reason, we don't want to address that because right. that actually solved many of the underlying issues we have in America all at once. You have one failed policy that causes yeah. so many other failed policies, but you keep that one going. Thomas Sowell had a phrase, and we've talked about it before, that there are no solutions, no policy solutions, only trade-offs. So when you make a decision like that, what what are the costs of something like that? And I can't help but think that I, I'm confident of it, that America would become sadder and more despondent in a world where drugs were uh, legal and rampant. Because, uh, I, well, because see, I let, me, let me just give you one example. The one example, and I'll let you respond. And I I'll do it quick. Yeah. Which is, look at what happened at the opioid crisis in the first place. That was legally distributed Purdue Pharma uh, Oxycontin that was rocketing around the United States. And that induced the beginning of a horrific opioid crisis in the United States. Now that, that obviously it's complex, it's changed a lot since then, but that was the, the starting point for that. I worry that in a world where we legalize highly addictive drugs, we're gonna crush the lives of Americans. And that's a, that's a dire trade-off in the environment you're talking about. Well, caffeine is a highly addictive drug. Alcohol is a highly addictive drug. Sugar is a highly addictive drug. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I don't know the role of the federal government is to make those moral decisions for the individual. Right now, the, the all of us right now. Wow. The He's only, sounding like the right-wing person. In, yeah, well, 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 look at it. He's sounding like the like, libertarian, the right-wing libertarian. Well, look, I'm in Atlanta, wherever you guys are at, none of us are more than 10 minutes away from being able to buy crack if we wanted to. And that's just the God's honest truth. If any of us really felt like it, we can probably find somebody and buy some crack or some heroin right now if heroin we really maybe. felt like it. Whether yeah, whether it's legalized or not. So what are we really regulating? We're regulating the ability to regulate the uh, these items. And so this is how you end up with fentanyl spikes uh, uh, going around the country. This is how you end up with bad batches of heroin taking out entire communities, those sorts of things. Because you want to, we live in this weird Victorian society where we still think the government Oh my God! These these poor ruffians do not know how to regulate what so, goes into their body. They must eat cereal and not masturbate. So we don't live in that society anymore. So I, I would I would uh, key in on one thing you said, and then I think we should wrap up. But I, one thing that I will key in on is um, something that I think the difference between the right wing approach and the and what I think of as the left wing approach to immigration is you know, actually getting cooperation from the Mexican government to actually crack down and giving, you know, providing some resources, law enforcement resources to crack down on the cartels Mm -hmm. rather than just thinking about smugglers at the border. Because again, it doesn't start at the border. Like it starts with the cartels and the drug cartels and the drug organizations, Mm -hmm. not just the drug mules. That's the same approach that we had with the war on drugs was we let the kingpins and the smugglers, you know, go, but we got the the corner boy, you know what I mean? And we put him in jail for three or four years. And that's a, that's not a good approach. You don't get the little guy and let the big guy go. You have to take the care of these organizations and start to dismantle them. And part of that is compelling, you know, with carrots and sticks, some of the, uh, these governments and, and rooting out corruption 
and getting them to actually hold uh, these cartels yeah. uh, accountable. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if you're just going to fight it at the border, like you said, wall, that's not going to stop it. So it's funny. I, I used to go, well, I still go on this one uh, TV network and they would always have this like scary music. And then they would put up a, um, uh, a picture, you know, where they'd be talking about, it would say invasion. And they had uh, these people climbing over the wall. And every time I never said it, but I always wanted to be like, so isn't that show that graphic showing that the wall is ineffective? If you've got all these people, you're showing pictures of these people on top of it, climbing over it, you know, like there's gotta be another way. Um, so I think that there, there's, um, I think, you know, we, we talk about why people didn't come during Trump. It was because some of the cruelty, you know, separating families, people were like, Oh crap. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want my, to be separated from my children. I don't, you know, we separated almost 4,000 families and 270 of them still, we still Jason, can't find their parents. But Jason, what you're talking about, that's what happened with the Trump administration with Mexico. So Trump threatened a trade war with Mexico and Mexico said, uncle, not going to do that. So what they did was they started enforcing their own southern border. They started putting federal law enforcement on the southern border to keep people from flowing north through Mexico. And they agreed to the remain in Mexico arrangement uh, in, in, in order to try and bring down the amount of illegal immigration in the United States because they don't want people getting. So so the end result was it did have a stifling effect on illegal migration into the United States. That's exactly what you're talking about, which is getting Mexico yeah, to address some of these we still got, But we still got remain in Mexico. We still got that. We've still know, got it, Title 42. Um, we've still got people but living in inhumane conditions. That's the other thing is, is whether these migrants deserve humane conditions or inhumane conditions. So I think that's part of this discussion. Robert, what do you think? And then we got we to gotta wrap up because I got to go to work. Yeah, know, yeah. The job that yeah. actually pays me, Neil Patel. No, I'm kidding. Well, you, you know, it's interesting because Trump gave a speech, I think it was yesterday, the, uh, the talking points um, uh, meeting in D.C., where he talked about what his plan was to tackle homelessness. And he said, I want to purchase a bunch of land for cheap out on the outskirts of cities. And then I want to ship all the homeless people out there and build tent cities for them. That was literally his exact same plan on immigration, because all he did was just set up a tent city on the other side of the border. And the minute that there was a, 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 a breach in the armor, uh, everybody just came back. You're pinning up the demand instead of addressing the actual demand. And when we talk about getting the Mexican and Central American governments to attack the cartels, that's like telling the American government to attack the big pharma cartel or to attack the OPEC or the oil cartel. Um, those are their funders. Those are the people that keep them in office. Often they are members uh, of those organizations, and that's how they got into power in the first place. So right. I think instead of trying to tell, tell other governments what to do, just change the American policy on drugs and it's financing all of this. Take away the economic incentive, make it where people have to go get a prescription and, and get therapy, tax the hell out of it, and then allow individuals to make their own choice. If you decide you want to use drugs, go do it. That's your life. I'm not here to live it for you. If you so, decide you don't want to, then by all means, continue doing that. It'll be the exact same system we have now, just better and safer and it solves the problems. I do think we need to, to root out corruption because I think some of this is just human trafficking. It's not just about drug trafficking. So I, I, I do think we need to root out corruption in those countries and also attack, which the, you know, the, the cartels aren't just involved in drug trafficking. They're involved in human trafficking. So we need to, to also do that. But I will say this in terms of legalizing drugs, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to that conversation. I'm, I'm down for that, actually. But I will say this, Robert P uh, Patel, I'm sorry, P Patillo. I don't know why I said Patel. That's I was thinking, of, thinking yeah. of another Patel that I know. <laughs> um, Robert Patillo, I just want to say thank you. This was a riveting conversation. I enjoyed this so much. You know, and Vince, I haven't seen you in a long time, so at least it feels that way. So it's always good to actually have a conversation with my good friend. Um, so the three of us need to need to get, you know, a beer or a tea or something. Uh, no sugar, because that's an addictive drug. No caffeine. Uh, but we definitely need to get together and have these conversations in person. I love uh, having this discussion. So next time you're in D.C., Robert, look us up and we'll We'll all get together. Thank you for watching Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Like, subscribe, uh, and share with your friends. All right. Peace out.